we're here now. Or are we? <laughs> is anybody really here is, at this point, Jack? Is anybody really here? <laughs> we are. Okay, great. We are. No, you know, here's here's what I just what I just saw on uh, before before we like get into the meat of the of the conversation, which is obviously like. Darren and I have been very clear about this. There is no objectivity in film criticism. <laughs> we just thought that was a really funny title. Uh, right, because Nick, Nick really didn't think so. That was kind of amazing. Um, the two of us just egging him on. It's like, do it, Nick. Come on, Nick. Make it the title. Make it the title. Um, Come on, Nick. Paddington is objectively better than Citizen Kane. It, like that's Statistically, mathematically. We've um, done the math, and uh, Paddington 2 is mathematically better than Citizen Kane, which, yeah, which I think is hilarious. But, like... After watching Pattison, pa, uh, Patting, Pattison. <laughs> after watching Pattison Kane, <laughs> Robert Pattinson Kane, uh, it is such a delightful movie. It is so good-hearted that, sh- like, sure, you could find flaws in it, but you will not. And I just see, like, over on Twitter here, someone is sharing that they they watched this for the first time last night with their wife and six-year-old son. By the end of it, my wife was teary-eyed, my son was indifferent, and I was sobbing like an uh, <laughs> like an ugly crying. And it took us a good ten minutes to pull our shit together, which is yes, Paddington yeah. is so wholesome. It, it is it's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's quickly become like a Christmas movie, and it was only released I think about four years ago. It's already become like a Christmas movie in my household, where like my parents will find it on on television and will just stop and stand and stare at the television, kind of entranced in it, uh, yes. which is kind of amazing. It's the kind of thing that I think you know only happens with movies like say Heat, where it's like you turn it on, you're like, okay, well now I'm committed to it. And <laughs> to be fair, I mean Heat is a great movie, but mm-hmm. Paddington Two is shorter than Heat, therefore it's less of a commitment. I mean mathematically, it's just better. Than Math- Mathematically, it's just better than he. Basically, what we're saying is Paddington Two is better than Heat. Yeah, take I like that, that, that I, Michael. Mann. That was the sharp swerve. It's like you know the, the the title teases: is it objectively better than Citizen Kane? What we're actually coming at you in this podcast is: is it better than Heat? <laughs> I guess you could say that's a true hot take. Oh, Darren, always, always get it in there. It's fantastic. Mm. That's fantastic. And yeah, but and so before we get into all of that talk, I did want to uh, mention a little bit because like I know it's not like the big movie of the weekend because there you know really are no big movie of the weekend. But I, I watched uh, The Mitchells versus The Machines. And what do you remember what the original title of that was? Unplugged? I, oh, OK, interesting, because, yeah, this was a movie that I believe was actually again, like as the title tells you, a Sony animation production. It was originally meant to be theatrical. Yes. It was sold on to Netflix and it was released, I think, rather quietly. It was unconnected, I think, is the original title that it was going by. Ooh, yes. Um, and it, it's an interesting film. I watched it on your recommendation and I absolutely loved it. Um, so, you know, thank you for that recommendation. Actually, it was really, really great. It, like, honestly and sincerely, just a delight. Yes. Oh, and you are you are correct. It is it or it was called Connected, and it it really is, and it's that it's that like Lord Miller production where they are having a ton of fun with the animation. You know, it's it's not quite like as eyeball popping as Into the Spider Verse, but like the animation is fun and it's weird and it's very like it's like meme style as far as like two D versus three D animation, and it it's. Like the thing that Lord Miller, the Lord Miller production company does is 
it puts a footprint on its animation style where it's like, this is not Pixar and we're all going to be thankful for that. Well, no, that, that's it exactly. I sat down to watch it. I didn't know anything about it because it had arrived, again, relatively quietly, which is like, you know, again, it's great that this is available for people to watch. It's great it's available on Netflix, which a lot of people have and mm. so can watch it with the click of a button and you absolutely should do it. But it's one of those things with Netflix where there is so much content that it tends to get a bit buried and you don't necessarily know a lot about it or hear a lot about it mm -hmm. because they release so many movies over the course of a year and their marketing department's only like, okay, but Jupiter's legacy is what's important this week and we're sending the messaging on. <laughs> that so like i i knew very little about the mitchells versus the machines when i sat down to watch it this morning mm. and it's amazing because instantly like before the title credits rolled i was like wait is this a lord miller production and then the words a lord miller production <laughs> appear on screen and i'm like damn it you guys you've done it again um and what i will say actually like i you're entirely right to say like it's not into the spider verse because very few movies are into the spider verse right. i mean even paddington 2 isn't into the spider verse if we're being entirely fair right no but but Barely. like i mean i've I, I feel like like the thing about Lord and Miller is, and again, not to derail this, because I think we should actually talk about the Mitchells versus the machines. Mm. But as like as producers, as writers, as directors, as designers, as like people with a distinctive viewpoint and aesthetic, uh, one of the things like we tend to focus on the stuff that they do that is like amazing, earth shattering, and deserves to be in the conversation for like the best stuff that's been produced in this past 10 or 20 year cycle. Things like the 21 Jump Street movie, for mm -hmm. example, which is like mind blowing. Things like the Lego movie, which is just a fantastic piece of animation. Things like Into the Spider Verse, which is like, you know, at worst, the second best Spider Man movie ever made. At worst. Like, <laughs> that's if you're grumpy and you're begrudgingly giving it that title. Uh, but I feel like, even if you step beyond that, like, the Mitchells versus the Machines reminded me not of nothing so much as, like, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, which yes. is a movie that we, we all sleep on because it's only very good. It's. <laughs> like, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, a it's lot only of, really a lot of people good. sleep on that is that is a regular repeat in our house as it is one of the most quotable, funniest animated movies ever, bar none. Uh, but yeah, and yes, Mitchell's versus Machine is actually very similarly structured as far as like the the weird kid, the father who's a little out of like you know for for any of us who has father issues. Oh, these these are your movies, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like, and, and the Mitchell's Versus Machine is is absolutely kind of great fun. It's a very broad, very playful kind of concept. It's like a machine uprising, and the only people who can stop it are this dysfunctional family, the Mitchells. And like, it's a very basic premise, and you look at it, and you could kind of like, again, one of the reasons why I was so hesitant to approach it is because when I looked at it on Netflix, it looked like it could have been any Blue Sky or kind of Sony or Ooh, Universal sure. or Fox animation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it looked like it could have, and, you know, I don't, like, I don't hate, like, Monsters versus aliens or whatever but it's also not necessarily something that i rush out to see mm -hmm. and i think that like it has that really weird energy to it and incredibly charming and it's that thing that is incredibly hard to do and it, it's something that i i like i watch it and i'm in awe of how they balance this 
you mentioned that it has that very mimetic quality where it's constantly overlaying again like standard like cgi computer generated 3d animation with like what looks like hand-drawn animation over it so like rainbows will appear behind them text will appear on screen uh, images will be frozen and then rendered in conventional 2d animation mm -hmm. as well uh, but it's all very kind of mimetic and very self-aware and very playful and very wry and full of like references to things there are moments where like characters heads are overlaid with like mimetic footage of like monkeys screaming for example uh because it's it's like that's how you, that's how kids look at the world they look at it through their phone and they see memes <laughs> and they share them and like when you do that it's very easy to fall into the trap of being incredibly cynical and incredibly mm. wry mm -hmm. and i mean this is probably a nice like this is something to put a pin in if you're listening to this and say this is a theme they're probably going to come back to later when they talk about paddington but it, it's like it's the post shrek world where like okay kids are smart now kids aren't dumb now like they used to be kids are smart and they know we're making kids movies for them so let's bring them into the joke let's tell them that this is a wry kids movie and we know that they're smart and they're smart too so we can all appreciate how smart and ironic and cynical this movie is but and this is this is what like i really love about lord and miller is they have that so that even like your most cynical sitting on a phone playing tiktok uh, dad we're watching a movie teenager can engage with the movie on that level <laughs> but there's also underneath that a very earnest very sincere very carefully and very lovingly constructed emotional arc that carries it through the film you mentioned the importance of like the dad arc in this because like the mitchells is basically it's a story of katie mitchell who's an aspiring filmmaker who's going off to college and who's never connected with her father rick who's played by danny mcbride and the idea that like through this, they kind of bond, they come to understand one another. She comes to understand that he has his strengths and he has his way of looking at the world. And it isn't necessarily wrong because it's not her way. And he finally understands that what she's doing, even though he doesn't understand it, means a lot to her and means a lot to other people and mm -hmm. has value, even though he, he can't place it in any context that he understands. So you have this like really deep, really earnest, really sincere, like you mentioned dad stuff. This really pure, unfiltered dad <laughs> stuff running through it, and the movie, the movie tackles it with incredible earnestness. And so you have this kind of wonderful ability to move the. I don't even know if they move the dial. If it's fair to say they move the dial, but I think they do throughout. Where like you can go from like this incredibly broad. Oh man, what if machines took over the world? And what if your personal assistant was like Olivia Coleman, but not mm. Olivia Coleman who won like an Oscar and got nominated for another Oscar, but Olivia Coleman like when she was doing that Mitchell and Webb look or doing Peep Show, like the British comedian <laughs> Olivia Coleman who's just going broad and like eating all the cgi scenery mm -hmm. but also what if we took these characters seriously from an emotional point of view and it, it does those things like incredibly well i didn't cry at it but there were moments where i was like i'm actually i'm really moved by this and like this is a movie that begins with jokes about velociraptors and color <laughs> filters and you know yeah, I mean, and dog cop, like dog cop, is a recurring motif in this. A dog like that cannot sock, pu sock puppets yeah. and dog cop are like play play wildly throughout the movie. But like you said, it has that emotional core, and it would be very easy. Like if this were like if this were a a boomer script, it would be very easy for computers are take have taken over the world only. Uh, you know, dad with his nature skills can save the day, and it's like. 
And and if it was a pure kids movie, it would be like, oh, only the kids can save the day. Dads are gross and stupid. But because it has that emotional core, like they both have to figure out how to get outside of their comfort zone and see the world outside of their own bubble. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. Just a beautiful flick. <laughs> it is immaculately put together, like and with so much care and with so much affection, so much love. And like even the casting is perfect in it. Like again, like. Abby Jacobson uh, from Broad City is playing mm. Katie. Danny McBride is her father. Maya Rudolph uh, is her mother as well. And they're fantastic. You have like Eric Andre. Um, and again, like that, the fact that this is a kids movie. And as you point out, like in a basic kids movie, the plot of this would be man phones these days. Am I right? Um, but like, <laughs> that, and that but would like, be the only joke, right? That would be that would be the extent of like the social commentary in here. And like the Mitchells versus Machines is actually like it has a wonderful moment where like the character played by Eric Andre as Mark Zuckerberg is like, man, I really should have considered building a giant system that just harvested people's information and required their consent in order to buy into it. And like it's like, wow, you actually understand the real issue with like this stuff. It's not the kids are staring at their phones. It's that we have these giant conglomerates that are harvesting the data and using it for God knows what, which again is a very nuanced taken as well. Mm -hmm. But even things like like the casting, like Unlike Tom and Jerry, and I love that Tom and Jerry has become a runner on this. It's like you can tell how badly Tom and Jerry screwed up by looking at the movies that John Legend chose to make instead of paying off the joke at the end of Tom and Jerry. But like here you have like the, the family against which the Mitchells are cast, uh, the posies, I think they are because they they're posers, but they're they're like the Instagram filter family, but yes. they're voiced by Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, which is amazing like it's so perfect it's so pitch perfect and mm. so smart and so clever and it works if you're a kid because the the jokes are fundamentally funny because this rival family are so perfect together that they've mastered yoga as a kung fu mechanism to fight the robot apocalypse but if you're an adult watching it it's like yeah john legend and chrissy teigen are probably insufferable on instagram um, <laughs> i mean like when i say insufferable i mean insufferably fantastic but also yeah. Oh, they're so beautiful. Oh, oh they're yeah. so beautiful all the time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How are they beautiful doing that? Wait, that says, um, this doesn't make any sense. Oh, right. And yeah, it, he's it, unclogging it, his gutters and he looks like the sexiest man alive. You know he would because he would do it with style. That's why, yeah. Darren. <laughs> she, she's snow shoveling her driveway. And like, this is the best looking, like, it's better than I look on the beach. Um, right. Right. No. And so, yeah, it's it's just one of those. And like, I'm I'm so happy that it went to Netflix because that means it was really easy for me to watch. I know like yeah. it was kind of dumped to Netflix uh, during obviously all of the movie theaters shut down, but it's so worth it for. I mean, everyone probably has a Netflix account. Let's be honest. Really worth a watch, especially yeah. if you do like that. That's that cloudy with a meatball style of comedy uh, that that unique animation style is so fun. So yeah. as long you know, it's 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 got it's got its schmaltz, and we're about to go full schmaltz as we talk Paddington too. But, but. but that, that's it. Is that like like the the entertainment dial for children exists like largely on a scale that runs from like ironic and self aware like Shrek, and I would argue like Minions and Despicable Me are also over this end, mm -hmm. and then it flips over into like the earnest prestige category with like you know most of the Pixar stuff, like stuff like Soul sure, for example, yeah, yeah. and I would argue that like Paddington is. In there as well and like these aren't value judgments like there are really good movies on both ends mm -hmm. but what i like about the mitchells versus the machines is that it kind of it goes on both like 
Sorry, this is me doing my little kind of, uh, I'm doing my yoga pose Ooh. right now. But it does that thing where it manages to flip the scales, where it can go from being like playful, ironic and self-aware mm -hmm. to actually taking itself seriously and never compromises one or the other. I, I, I really like it. I think it's yeah. I think it's remarkable in that sense. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, we have a question here in the chat. That's a great way uh, to lead into Paddington 2, which is out of curiosity. Should I or should you watch Paddington 1 first? How good is the first one? Here's what I can say. My children watched Paddington 1. I don't believe I did. So <laughs> I and and I didn't need it to enjoy Paddington 2 as much as I did. So. Yeah, it's it's an essential. Like it's very good. Mm -hmm. And like I what I will say about like the first Paddington um is that when it was announced, let's 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 take let's step into the time machine and travel back to the distant past of like 2013. So Paddington is announced, mm -hmm. right? And people love Paddington. Paddington is like a beloved children's character. Yes. He's known for the book illustrations. He's known for the cartoon that was on British television. And so everyone's all like, okay, this will be interesting. And then they announced, no, it's going to be a live action and CGI hybrid. Mm -hmm. And your immediate reflexive response in your brain is to go, isn't that like Garfield or the Chipmunk movies? Is that what we're doing with this? And they go, oh, by the way, we have hired Colin Firth the most British man on earth to voice Paddington. And it's like, okay, that's maybe an odd choice, but I can see why you're, it's a top tier talent. Obviously you're spending money on it. And then a couple of months later, Colin, Colin Firth goes, actually, you know what? This isn't really working out. I'm bailing. Bye guys. And you're like, wow. Okay. Maybe things are deeply troubled on Paddington. And it's like Ben Wishaw steps in and Ben Wishaw in interviews is like, you know, like, but everyone loves Paddington, but I also like money. So, you know, I mean, I thought that that'd be nice to have some money that I could go and buy stuff. So I can, I can go and make my own kind of indie movies, you know, mm. without starving. It's like, okay, this is sending me all sorts of troubled signals. And then the first like teaser trailer arrives and it's, it's that very, it's literally every ironic and self-aware joke in the film. So like when Paddington arrived, I, and I, and I suspect I've talked for more than just myself, but I, I will only presume to talk for myself. Mm -hmm. I was at the, God, this is going to be terrible. This is, this looks like an Elvin and the Chipmunks, but like with something that I, as somebody who grew up in the British Isles, actually care about. This is horrific. <laughs> um, oh no. And then I go and see it and it is just, it is beautiful. It's smart. It's funny. It's sincere. It's clever. Um, and I like it a lot. Um, I, I, I watched it this morning because I'm, I'm a professional and also because, you know, it's a good movie that will make you smile. Um, then I was like, yeah, this is a really good movie. It's very well constructed. It's very clever. It's very smart. It moves incredibly quickly. And a lot of the stuff that works in the second movie is there in the first movie. Mm. Like a lot of the stuff that really sings in the second movie, you can see working in the first movie. And I think it, it's, it's well worth checking out. But at the same time, like, I think that the second one is like transcendental. The first one had no right to be as good as it was. <laughs> it was much better than I expected it to be. And then I went to the second one expecting that the second one would be as good as the first one, which would be great. Mm -hmm. And then the second one was better than it had any right to be whatsoever. And I feel like Paul King saying, actually, I'm not directing Paddington 3 feels like the safest bet because it seems like the only way that he could possibly like match that transition of like, this movie is better than it should possibly be based on my expectations, given that the two previous movies were also better than I expected them to be based on the expectations would be to like go fast and furious and shoot it on Mars or something, you know, shoot it in five dimensions, mm -hmm. like invent two additional dimensions in order to shoot it properly. So no, I, I think you can watch Paddington two separately. Mm -hmm. I think it holds up relatively well, but I would also not be hesitant. I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like, 
I wouldn't feel like you can't watch Paddington, if that makes sense. I wouldn't feel sure. like it's it's missable or it's skippable or it's, you know, it's not great or it's like the, the rough draft of the movie that gets you the second movie. It's very good on its own terms. It's just not as good, I would argue, as the second movie. Oh, well, and there's, there's probably some family interplay bits that I had missed. You know, they're, they're the, oh. the kind of the family arc, Paddington's adoptive uh, British family. Uh, they, they have a, a arcs here and there in the movie and they're, they're very sparse. And so I assume if you watch the first one, that, that helps fill that in a little bit. It does. There are a lot of callbacks and kind of references and kind of setups mm. and payoffs. Um, and like a lot of recurring jokes and a lot of stuff that plays out kind of again. And I don't, but I don't think it's essential. Like, I don't think you no. miss, like Paddington is the, like Paddington 2, as much as I, I love it, is not, like, it's not a movie that you sit there and contemplate and stroke your chin and have to sit with like half an hour afterwards and like process on an intellectual level. You probably have to process on an emotional level. That's yes. happened. But like, I don't think you have to process on an intellectual level and figure out how it all fits together. No, um, it's, it is like, it's, it's. It's so well made, but it uh, it also like plays its hand really broadly, especially with its setups and payoffs, with its with its Chekhov's guns. Like we got to the point near the end of the movie where even my youngest child was like, "I think I know what's going to happen." Yep, that's what that's what's going to happen because it's that kind of movie, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it plays it very broadly and very uh, and with flourish. <laughs> the the way that it works is like Paddington gives you a joke. And then it comes back and restructures the entire movie mm -hmm. so that the joke can be played again as a dramatic beat. <laughs> so, for example, like you have this whole thing about how Mr. Brown, played by you, Bonville, is like the best coconut thrower, like fairground games player in the world. Mm -hmm. And like it's a joke because he's an insurance adjuster. Like it's it, you're meant to look back on his roguish youth and go, that's a really nerdy thing for him to have been roguish about as a kid. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but at the climax, you better bet there's a situation where he has to throw a ball at an object in a distance and hit it at great speed. It's also like he takes up yoga and it's only mentioned once briefly at the start and at the climax, well, you better believe that there's a sequence where he has to use his <laughs> yoga skills in order to survive. There's a moment where like Mrs. Brown is kind of discussed in terms of like wanting to swim the channel. And while, you know, it's a good joke in large part because Sally Hawkins like got an Oscar nomination for The Shape of Water. So it's like, huh, we see what we're doing there. But you also better believe that that's going to come around as a plot point in the third act of the movie. Like it's it's not subtle. And, well, and I don't and think it has to be. The amazing thing is, like they don't follow the standard rule of three, which you know, set up, reminder, payoff. Like that's the standard. Everything is only set up and paid off. But because the movie is the way it is, you know, you remember all of these setups so very well, even when, like Darren said, some of these setups are throwaway lines, like they're throwaway jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which is, which is stunning. But, and so like, if I have to criticize a perfect movie, because obviously Paddington 2 is a perfect movie, like that's, that is part of it is some of it is some of the minutia is very light. I will then immediately take away that criticism and say that that's part of the charm of Paddington 2. All of the lightness is what makes it work so well and what makes the emotional resonance work so well. 
I will go kind of one step further. And like, this is the part where like, I vaguely allude to taking the title seriously, which we absolutely should not do. But one of the, like, but no, like, I mean, there is a tendency to like laugh at how goofy the, the prospect is. And we should probably come back to the idea of whether or not like we can objectively rank the best movie ever. And kind of what the hell is going on with Rotten Tomatoes and like how obsessed we are as a culture with this sort of thing and sensationalizing this sort of thing. Being honest, myself and Jack were just like, I want to talk about Padding 2. You want to talk about Padding 2? Let's talk about Padding 2. Yeah, but we excuse. should probably come back to that. Yeah. But if we want to like... <laughs> There's also a tendency to be almost ironically too flippant about it, to go, oh, yeah, but Paddington 2 just has a talking bear in it, and that's hilarious. So obviously it's the best movie ever. Um, but what I do think it is actually very, very well constructed and put together, like ignoring that kind of setup and payoff thing. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that makes Paul King really great as a director is that he has a remarkable sense of like timing and editing and rhythm, which works very well with like the, the set pieces and the animation that he does. Like I would argue that these are two of the best screwball comedies that Hollywood has produced in a very long time. Like, like, there are extended sequences in these movies. They're not plot-driven movies to a certain extent. There are plots, mm. but there are also points at which the movie will wander off for 20 minutes to do its own thing because, <laughs> hey, that looks like it's a fun thing to do. Sometimes <laughs> that involves like putting Paddington on a skateboard because you guess the marketing people were like, can we can we give him like 10% more attitude? And Paul King's like, fine, I'll give you the footage for the trailer. But in the movie, it's going to be wholesome and sweet. I promise you that. But like things like in the second movie, Paddington's like brief career as a window cleaner which by the way also sets up something that comes back into play at the climax of the movie anyway but it's basically it's it's all about like physics and slapstick and like the use of space and the object and again for a movie that is based around an animated bear king is very careful to ensure that paddington always has mass and weight and mm. like the sequences like literally during when he's doing the window cleaning there's an entire gag about how much Paddington weighs and whether he weighs enough to lift this bottle of water and kind of what happens if he leans the right way and moves his weight around but it like gives him a sense of form and mass which I think works really well mm -hmm. and like just these sequences like again this is the thing where if you're being pretentious and we don't like to be pretentious but I mean, sometimes I kind sometimes I end up like yeah I know I just wander into it um, <laughs> but like if you are if you are being pretentious and you want to take it seriously yeah. and you know like I mean let's not be too flippant about it cuz it it's like it's a well made film give it praise for being well made mm. like that argument about what cinema is and the argument that like cinema as an art form has to do something distinct from other media. So it's not just about plot because you can get plot from books. It's not just about actors on stage shouting, actors shouting lines at one another because you can get that on stage. Mm. It's replicable on stage. Mm. It has to be something distinct. And I think that like, you know, like Mad Max Fury Road to pick an example, Ooh. arguably like the John Wick movies, arguably like the Mission Impossible movies, there's a lot of Paddington that kind of celebrates stuff that you can do in cinema that you could never do even in prose, in the source books, uh, on stage or in any other medium, even in animation, because I don't think he'd have the same physical mass if he were animated. Hmm. Um, and I think that like that's something that watching the two of them back to back, I really adored is the amount of time and care that the movie put into well being a movie, like making sure that like Paddington, the movie wasn't just a literal translation of the book to screen or the source material to screen or like any other sort of movie. It's like, no, 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 let's actually have some fun, be playful and do stuff that is, you know, cinematic. Um, 
in this movie about a talking bear voiced by Ben Whishaw, which is also a touching like parable about the immigrant experience, which again, incredibly for a children's movie, the first one really stands out and it's in the second one as well. But this idea of like Paddington as an immigrant, there's this big conversation about like Paddington coming to London mm-hmm. as a foreigner, mm-hmm. knowing absolutely nobody and like being accepted there and being embraced by the community. Um, and again, one of the, one of the things that Paddington 2 improves upon from the original Paddington is that Paddington is a metaphor for immigration that features precisely one non-white character. Uh-huh. And that one non-white character is a talking bear voiced by Ben Whishaw. Oh. Paddington 2. Yeah. There's a moment where you feel like somebody in the room should have been like, eh, maybe put a hand up. Just- Paddington, 2, <laughs> yeah, Paddington 2 at least realizes that and kind of like adjusts accordingly. It's a much sure. more kind of broader film. Sure. But like, I love that. I love that. Like you can tell the king's like, let's take this sweet, adorable talking bear seriously, really? uh, but without like stripping out any of the fun. Mm-hmm. It's not dark and gritty. We're not going to like interrogate the cliches of a Paddington story. We're not going to deconstruct this beast in a raincoat. We're just going to ask, what is what do we love about Paddington, and how do we put that on screen? You know? Well, and now we can get like lovely, like long form articles about what Paddington 2 can teach us about prison reform, because yes. even when even when Paddington goes to prison, like the wholesomeness of the character uh, quite literally infects everyone there. I think like the 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 statement that you made about like what a film does differently than a play or than a book is shown no greater than in the masterful use of the cut to a wide for the punchline like like for example yeah. when Paddington is in the prison and there is a huge slapsticky sequence in which he's doing laundry a red sock ends up in the laundry turning all the prisoners uniforms pink oh no what have I done hard cut to the wide shot of every single prisoner in bright pink prisoner clothing comedy gold and like again like one of the things that really surprised me about like Paddington 2 was it's like this is the Grand Budapest Hotel of talking bear movies. Ah, you could tell that ah, like Paul King was like, let's make a Wes Anderson. Because it, it has a very steampunky vibe to it. Like it's it's obviously set in London mm. that is recognizably a modern London. There mm. are buses, there are garbage cans, there are news vendors. You know, there's all this sort of stuff that you expect in modern London. But it's also like he has a little ladder that he wheels out in order to clean windows. It's the most, yeah, he kind of. It's like, got a little like crank a on it. Rod. It's got a little yeah, crank, like a crank on it. Yeah. Yeah. Like the prison. Like they escape prison in a hot air balloon from a laundry basket with laundry stitched together. Mm-hmm. And like prison is very much constructed like a 2D picture book. It's which beautiful. is like, again, it's beautiful. So, like, and, and, and also, I just see in chat here. Uh, yeah. So the, the joke, Eisen, is yes, all of these hardened male criminals are forced to wear pink and pink is unmanly. That's the joke, though it should be said that they literally spend the rest of the movie in pink and it's never brought up again and everyone seems really happy about it. <laughs> Well, like that, that's that's like, like that's the beauty of the joke is that like these tough and hardened criminals are like and again like you you joke it's like Paddington fixing law fixing prison reform it's not you know it's not really that but it's it is it's though. the idea it of, of fun- it it, it, it kind of is kinda that is but though. it's the idea of like fundamental decency and obviously <laughs> this cartoon 
No, but like, like at its very core, it's this incredibly humanist story. Like at the core is this idea that these people who are in prison and like it's made very clear. It's never really explored why these people are in prison. I don't think it's ever explained why Knuckle, what Knuckles McGinty mm -hmm. did. There are there. And like it's very careful to like there's a wonderful sequence where Paddington introduces all of the other prisoners. And like it's such a great sequence because like it begins with all like and here's 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 Pitchy. Here's Flinty. Here's Stabby McGee. And uh, here's Lord Flint Wintock. And it's like, pleasure to meet you. Um, they all just got to come in. But it's this whole strata of life. Like, it's heavily implied that, like, these criminals come from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. They're not just kind of like blue collar criminals. There's obviously white collar criminals in there as well. But, like, throughout, there is this idea that if you treat these people who are kept in cages and like again prison reform mm. they're locked up they're treated as scum all their rights are taken away they're given no liberties they're served up gruel every day they're they're not in any way recognizable as human beings because that's the way the system's constructed like it's again sorry this is this is my my kind of very boring uh prison thing going on no here, but, but like, by the way like it it makes a wonderful statement on prison reform please keep going yes yeah <laughs> yeah but but it is like like it's a classical uh like it's a panopticon it's mm -hmm. that classic i think it's victorian era prison design where the idea like the prison hall that they use is designed in such a way that like every inmate is visible to every guard at every moment in time mm -hmm. which strips away any sense of privacy from these people which again is a large part of what makes them human beings so like what's remarkable about paddington 2 is that like on top of being everything else that it is when it drops paddington in prison it makes an argument that like paddington treating the other inmates like basic human beings talking to them like people asking them about their interests what they want what they enjoy doing what they find fulfilling in life makes them better people like the idea that like mm -hmm. you you have this like this idea that maybe if you're kind and polite the world will be right and yes maybe that's naive and optimistic but it's also like paddington's entirely correct in that <laughs> argument you should treat people with decency like no matter what they've done or where they are mm -hmm. how you treat them reflects on you and it also affects how they will behave and respond. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's such a sweet and sincere and like really warm movie that is genuinely touching because it, it takes this stuff like it's all goofy. It's all they're pink. There's lots of fondant. There's lots of cake. They escape in a hot air balloon. But at its core, it takes this idea. <laughs> you just glossed over the fact seriously. that there's lots of cake. They're, they eat nothing but like there is a point in the movie in which all the prisoners and guards are eating nothing but cakes. And it's never like looked at in any other light than, yes, of course, that would be lovely if we just ate cakes yeah. all the time. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? Like, what are you losing by doing this? Like The, the prison warden starts reading them bedtime stories. <laughs> and I mean... And like, yes, part of the joke is that like these are hardened criminals <laughs> in this very masculine environment reading bedtime stories. But the, the movie very seriously and very earnestly like argues that, yeah, treat them with decency <laughs> and respect and love and affection. And maybe maybe some of them will do better than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, and again, like. It does this without laboring the point, without like turning it's this is not just mercy. This is not the chamber. This is not like a time to kill. But this is but I love that like even in this kind of throwaway family friendly bear movie, mm. it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe you should be nice to other people. Like there's a really, really like it's a small moment, but I adore it, where Mr. Brown goes to prison to visit Paddington mm. and they've introduced all the prisoners, and the prisoners are standing behind him. And like Mrs. Brown is like, oh. 
maybe we can ask these nice men for help. Yeah. And Mr. Brown kind of like leans over, flicks a switch on the wall. He's like, these men are, are hardened criminals. They're, they're basically animals. Look at them. That knuckle dragging kind of guy with the beard. He looks like he's never had a thought in his life. At which point, like Brendan Gleeson goes, oh, you just flicked off the light. We can still hear you. Mm-hmm. The microphone button is on the other side. It says microphone at the bottom. Um, but like, again, the idea that like Paddington reaches these people by treating them with decency and respect that people like Mr. Brown, who is a nice person. Mr. Brown is not a monster. Mm-hmm. He's not like Mr. Murray. He's he's not a villain of this story in any way, shape or form, but he doesn't think to treat them in this way. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Like, again, it, it's so earnest and pure and sincere and like weirdly sweet. And, uh, yeah. It's almost as sweet as the cakes that they serve in the prison. Mess. No. And, and, you know, like it, you what the thing I worried about because I I had heard a little bit about Paddington too I had heard nothing literally nothing but good things was, as was this your first watch this is my first watch of Paddington too yeah oh, uh, I'd heard nothing but good things um, obviously uh, it's a perfect movie a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes <laughs> but like I always kind of avoided it because I was like oh you know it's gonna be corny and schmaltzy and like I'm okay with schmaltz but uh, you know I don't necessarily like need to go out of my way to watch it now that I have seen it. Like that's, that's what the worry was for me is like, Oh, it's just going to be a, a corny, happy movie, but it's the way in which I, I don't know how they do it. Cause they start off, they kick the door down with sweetness during that. Like Paddington goes around his, his neighborhoods, uh, segue raising segue. money to, to, to buy a book for like, Oh no, just at the start. Just, oh, the oh, very start, oh the ju- opening- just like introducing all the neighbors and all the lovely things that Paddington does for all of his neighbors. Like we're talking like opening 10 minutes of the movie. <laughs> yeah. He, he gives like one of his neighbors who rides by on a bike, a sandwich to help her. So she doesn't feel hungry while she's riding. <laughs> he reminds like a doctor that he needs to remember his house keys so he doesn't get locked out he says hello to like the veteran on the corner who's antisocial and again like and that's the thing about the movie is that like it's a very flippant very like you could be so cynical about it Mm -hmm. but the movie's point is that if you are nice to other people you know sure sometimes that won't make them nice people mr murray Mm. does not become a nice person over the course of this movie but generally speaking, it makes life a bit better for everybody. There's the wonderful sequence. And again, it's not a subtle movie. <laughs> There's a sequence later on where Mrs. Brown is is walking through the street. And she sees like the street without Paddington on it. And it's not like a dystopia. It's not like, you know, like that bit in like It's a Wonderful Life where like he got Jimmy Stewart ends up in this alternate world where his hometown becomes Las Vegas because he, he never existed or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like people are grumpier and angrier. People are yelling at one another. People are aggressive and sniping at one another. And it's just unpleasant. Unpleasant in a way that is like markedly different. Mm-hmm. And I like that the movie like and again, it it sounds so trite and you could be very cynical and go, oh, man, what does niceness ever solve anything? And it's like, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, obviously in the grand scheme of things, you know, Paddington is not going to solve any of the major serious. <laughs> he's not going to solve climate change, that bear, as much as I love him. But he does make life a lot easier for the people around him Mm -hmm. and he makes interacting with people a lot easier in the world around him and he just makes the community better by being pleasant and and considerate and empathic and like 
Well, and it's it's the way in which they dole out this information. Like like you said, Darren, not subtle. Like they they (laughs) but like it's the the way the story unfolds, the way Paddington interacts, all of his little scenes with all the other characters, you start to get into the rhythm of Paddington too really quickly, where you're like you know, I, I definitely like I was I, like, I, I'm not going to say I came in grumpy because I enjoy schmaltz, but I was like, all right, corny movie time. Oh, talk <laughs> like it. It really lulls you into the rhythm really quickly to to where unlike an action movie where you say, oh, I hope the hero, you know, punches the bad guy. You're just like, oh, I hope Paddington can have a good conversation with that guy. <laughs> like, Yeah, I, I like, I, I get, like, and it's, it's worth remarking, like, this is part of the kind of, like, renaissance of Hugh Grant, where he plays the villain, I think it's Phoenix Buchanan mm. is the name of the guy. Um, and again, like, loving late stage kind of Hugh, Hugh Grant's career. I think, like, beginning roughly around, I think, Cloud Atlas and Pirates and an Adventure with Scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, the point at which, like, Hugh Grant had this weird retroactive thing where he's like, sure, I've been a handsome leading man all my life and very debonair and very British and sexiest man alive and married to Liz Hurley and the king of rom-coms for most of the 90s. But you know what? I always wanted to be a character actor. And like all of a sudden it's like, yeah, sure. We'll cast you in Cloud Atlas. You can be like a weird cannibal dude or like, you know, you can you can also be any other sort of number of things. <laughs> you could be a vaguely uncomfortable racist caricature at one point if you want. But you could also do like the the kind of yeah, yeah, it's, well that's yeah, a separate conversation. A I love Cloud Atlas. I love Cloud Atlas, but it's a very But you could be like the the rogue in Pirates, for example, and here you can be that the self like the ham, this gloriously hammy British villain. And like you watch it and like he frames Paddington and he puts Paddington in prison, albeit indirectly. It's never suggested it's part of his major plan, but he seems happy that it happens. And he's very eager for Paddington to remain in prison because it makes it easier for him to do the villainous stuff that he's doing. Mm. But like throughout, you get the, the weird sense in which the movie and the characters also kind of like the villain. And like, and like, again, I don't know if people haven't watched it yet, but very mild spoilers. Like Paddington 2 does not end with Paddington throwing Phoenix Buchanan to his death while saying, rise from the ashes like that motherfucker or anything like that. <laughs> you know, just in case you're watching Paddington 2 waiting for that moment. Waiting that for moment the F-bomb, of, right? Yeah, waiting for the F-bomb and like the play on like Phoenix's name. It's mm. like, I'd like to see that Phoenix rise from the ashes. Mm. Um, but he gets like, even Phoenix Buchanan gets a happy ending. Like- and it's such a glorious scene. And you you have such a big smirk on your face. And you're like, this is the villain of the piece. And he's getting a happy ending. And not only that, I'm happy he's getting a happy ending. Which is like an incredibly deft balancing act for a movie like this, I would contend. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. Absolutely. Like there there are there are no bad parts to Paddington 2. Every sequence is full of charm and humor. And it looks gorgeous and it's bright and it's well shot and it's well edited. Uh, Dare I say this movie is 100% good, Darren, which is my segue into like the whole reason that we're talking about Paddington (laughs) 2, which is the weird state. I mean, is that dang old Internet? Let's just be honest. Is that dang old Internet crushing crushing Citizen Kane once again? (laughs) grinding down and mank wasn't enough (laughs) the release of mank wasn't enough we have to spit on like we have to spit on orson welles's grave all over again baby Mm -hmm. um okay and again like 
this is the thing that I, I find fascinating because it, it is a broader debate about movie culture. Mm -hmm. But first, first things first, we should probably agree that like objectively naming the best movie of all time is a fool's exercise. Yes. It's the kind of thing that you do in a pub and you have fun doing it. If you stop having fun arguing about what the best movie of all time is, you should probably not be arguing about what the best movie of all time is. Like if you're not enjoying it and, and crucially, if the person that you're having the discussion with <laughs> is also not enjoying it, you should stop, stop that conversation. Yes. Just go back off because it's, it's, it's inherently subjective. It's like, yeah, all it's the, the best movie of all time. Cause it's like, yeah, what, what is best? What, how do you measure it? How do you quantify it? Right. Do you measure it in terms of an impact on film history? Because if you do that, then you have to determine like which film is more influential. Is the cabinet of Dr. Calgary more or less important than Citizen Kane? And how do you quantify that? Is Bonnie and Clyde more or less important than Citizen Kane because it started new Hollywood. How do you fit those things together even when you get into like well okay let's take this seriously and make lists because we are serious people who make lists you end up with this kind of thing of like yeah but there's always a little bit of qualification and mm -hmm. definition there and it is impossible and we'll come back to the i suspect we're going to come back to the word objectively a lot in this discussion but it is impossible to objectively quantify so many of these things you can make an argument you can advance an argument you can say well look I think it is because this and like, obviously, when you're writing an essay or you're writing an article, you strip out all the I think or I would argue that you right. just cut to the core and you say, no, Citizen Kane is the best movie and it is the best movie because this. But at the start of that, there's an implicit bracket form in my right. not so humble opinion. Wr written by is I think. Right. Of course. Yeah. That, that's well. And, and that's the thing. There is no objectivity with art unless we are talking about technical aspects of things like like we can, you know, uh, objectively movies uh, run at twenty three point nine seven frames per second. That's objective. Some of them do. Unless we're talking about the hot. I was about films. to say here. here, here <laughs> like even, even that's, that's the thing is that even when you even when you get into that. That's my point is that even when you get into that level of like objective stuff where it's like, okay, if you want to objectively grade this movie, does it run at 24 frames a second? It's like, okay, all the Hobbit movies are bad movies. <laughs> Several animated movies are. are bad movies according to this metric. You know, even, even stuff like is the shot in focus, right? Which is like, you would imagine that's a fairly standard objective. That is good filmmaking because when you're shooting something, the audience should be able to see what you want to see in focus. Mm. But you're also like, Think of several of the most iconic shots in cinema. And I'm sorry, I wrote a book on Christopher Nolan, so this is the easiest example in my head. Do it. It's fine. But the introductory shot of the Joker in The Dark Knight, where he pulls off his mask and says, you know, a little crazier, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that shot is not in focus. And Nolan had in, Nolan and Wally Pfister had intended it to be, but because of where Ledger positioned himself, it was not. But they looked at the footage and they looked at other takes that they had done, and they're like, that take there has something ineffable. It's out of focus, and perhaps that out of focusness adds to its ineffable quality, mm. but that is the shot that I think I want in this movie. And I think looking at the audience reaction to that shot, you're like, what doesn't kill you only makes you stranger is the line, apologies. But like that moment <laughs> where he pulls off the mask, that is, I would argue, one of the definitive moments in 2000 cinemas. Like it, it, it's a moment in like 21st century cinema where everybody was like, whoa, okay, this is this is a moment. Mm -hmm. This is this is a big deal. And it's like, yeah, but if you were objectively measuring that shot, like your college professor would be like, yeah, out of focus. You should have done another take. Why couldn't you keep the actor in shot? That's basic shot 101. That's basic cinema <laughs> cinematography 101. Fister, see me after class. Um, you, you're lucky you're directing that Johnny Depp movie. <laughs> 
No, it's a, that is a beautiful example of some like this is art we are talking about. Everything is subjective. Every single part of it. We can play around with the fact that Paddington 2, by some metric of one website, is now better than <laughs> Citizen Kane, the movie that uh, you know popularized modern cinema. But hey, that's like the, that's because Darren and I can have fun here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I mean, the, like this this is the thing. This is like what like last week when we were talking about Mank. Like that was the moment where I was like, wait, is Jack enjoying this? Yeah. I feel like because like, it's will, like yeah. I'm enjoying this, but I feel like Jack isn't. So this is I should pull back a little bit. But no, like that, that's the thing is that I I feel like trying to us figure out like what the best is as an objective measure mm-hmm. is is frustrating. And it's one of the things that and sorry, I'm gonna get on my high horse. Don't worry, I'm gonna climb on my soapbox. Do it. And I'm gonna climb from my soapbox onto my high horse. That must be it just a, makes it one easier. High horse then. It's a very it's it just makes it easier. My back, I'm getting older. It's it's just, you know, with age. So one of the things that I find frustrating about, and it's just me personally, but I find frustrating about modern film criticism discourse and like just film discourse in general is, as we alluded to, the obsession with this idea of objectivity Mm. and the idea that you can measure a movie's worth and, and, and like quantify it by ways like aggregators like Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, they have their purpose and we'll come back to those in a moment. But even things like, say, videos, uh, which count, say, hypothetically, the sins of a particular movie and like have a little counter up the top. And the higher the counter, the worse the movie Mm. is. Or even that big thing that became very popular in cinematic discourse around about 2010, 2011-ish, where it's like, ha, I spotted a plot hole in this movie. Therefore, this movie is not objectively good. And it's like, Several things. First of all, movies are more than just plot delivery mechanisms. Uh, second, second of all, um, what you're describing as a plot hole may not actually be a plot hole, just based on a definition of what a plot hole actually is. And and like three, it's possible for movies to be emotionally consistent and like narratively consistent without necessarily being so tight that they hold water. I think of like there there was that, and you know. I, I loathe the Big Bang and I find myself really uncomfortable when I'm like on the same side of an issue as the Big Bang TV show. Oh, sure. But I was just going to say, you, how can you loathe like the start of our universe? But the, you're talking the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. The I mean, te- everything that followed the Big Bang was just a disappointment. I'm being honest. So but far. The Big Bang th- yeah. So like there's a there's an episode of that where Sheldon's favorite movie is uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sure. And it's a good choice. It's as good a choice as, as you could have possibly. Sure. And he's watching it with his fiance and it's very important. And you know that thing that we all do. We shouldn't do it, but we do it where it's like, look, you're important in my life. This thing is important in my life. Mm-hmm. I want it's like meeting your parents. I want you to meet this piece of art that is important to me. Please like I it. want the two of you. I want the two of you to get on. I want you to have a relationship with one another so that I can have a relationship with both of you. <laughs> um, and you know, he asks at the end, what did you think of like Raiders of the Lost Ark? Mm-hmm. And she's like, Well, nothing that Indiana Jones did in that movie had any impact on the plot whatsoever. Like the Nazis would still have opened the ark at the end and they would have all been burnt alive. And, you know, I mean, arguably Indy's involvement in all this just made it worse because it led to more deaths and more suffering. And Sheldon, who is like, according to the show, portrayed in very broad ways that are not necessarily flattering to geek culture, um, is like, oh, my God, she has ruined Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) And my problem is that, like, there was a while on the internet and it still kind of is where it's like 
there, you feel like the internet's like, yeah, if I can point out that there's a narrative lacuna in this movie, mm. it is objectively bad. Um, and, and, you know, therefore it is, is less worthy of consideration than this movie, which has no plot lacunas and therefore is objectively good. <laughs> and, and, it, 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 and again, it, it's one of the things that I feel kind of came with the emergence of geek culture into mainstream because there is mm. there, like, and again, this is probably where we, we circle back to Paddington 2 very briefly is that like, one of the big things in in culture in general, it's not just geek culture, is this idea of like gatekeeping mm -hmm. and like the idea of who gets to determine what the canon is, the canon of great films. What is the body of work that you look at when you say this is cinema um, and all this? Sort of, that's why things like Martin Scorsese calling Marvel movies theme park rides is so upsetting and frustrating. It's because, yeah, he's saying, nope, this silo here is cinema and this stuff exists outside it and that's a value judgment and that's frustrating and upsetting right and one of the big things that happened when nerd culture came into the mainstream was this very sensitivity about this idea of well are these comic book movies or these adaptations or video game movies are they being taken seriously as art by cultural gatekeepers mm -hmm. by people who review films for like the new york times and for the los angeles times for variety and for hollywood reporter and you know obviously that didn't always manifest itself in the healthiest manner. What with like death threats to people who gave negative reviews to the Avengers. And somewhat ironically, given how the internet has turned on the movie, The Dark Knight Rises. I remember negative reviews of The Dark Knight Rises getting death threats from the same people who probably now send death threats to people who give positive reviews to The Dark Knight Rises, oh, which I find kind of, yeah, there we oh. go. Because that's the culture we live in. Um, and nothing, by the way, nothing will make people take you seriously, like issuing a death threat when they give an opinion that you don't like. But like there was this idea that like how do we prove that these movies are art? How do we prove that these movies right. are yeah. cinema? And the answer is very simple. It's you know it. You know it as a viewer that this is important to you, that this has meaning to you, that this is what you think of when you think of as art. I I imagine there are people in the world right now, and, and deservedly so, for whom Paddington 2 is the best movie of all time. And I think that's fantastic. Like, there are people who have watched Citizen Kane and have been like, ah, it's kind of boring, actually. But Paddington 2 is where it's at. I yeah, think yeah. Citizen Kane <laughs> is very boring. <laughs> if it would be fun for you, we can have a conversation about that later. Okay. But no, all, all, jo all, joking, sorry, all, jo all joking aside, though, like, uh, like, I think that's grand. I think, like, that's, it makes you happy. Like, the whole point of watching movies, Jack, is that you enjoy yes. them. Like, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, like, the whole the whole point of like these movies existing is that you watch them, they make you happy, they give you an emotional or intellectual journey that fulfills you mm -hmm. and like gives you something that you find joy from. So I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong because that would make me an asshole. <laughs> um, but but like what happened is like you had this is not how things work because people are like no, but I need a card I can hold up so that when when Jack says he prefers Paddington 2 to Citizen Kane. I, you know, ah, 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 I got the card. I got this score from Rotten Tomatoes that <gasps> tells me, yeah, that tells me that oh. like Paddington is statistically like 0.79% right. better. No, you're right. Yeah, you know, you're, I guess I yeah. didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I did. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, which which is which is which is nuts to me. Yeah. And again, it, it's that that way in which culture works where it's like, but like that's not what those aggregators are designed to do. Like they, they don't validate a movie. The, 
again, sorry, we're going to get into the whole mechanics of Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. The Rotten, Rotten Tomatoes is a binary of fresh or rotten. Yeah. It's yes or no. Like, dislike. If you like a thing to, if you like a thing more than 51%, it's like. If you dislike it 51%, it's dislike. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter that there might be parts of it that, you, parts of a movie you dislike that you enjoy. And it doesn't matter that there are parts of a movie you enjoy that you dislike. Mm -hmm. As long as you feel more one way than the other, you're counted 100% as that. Mm -hmm. So it is entirely possible, and it is in fact very likely, that a movie that is broadly, across the board, unobjectionable, will get a much higher rating or higher score on Rotten Tomatoes than a movie that is, say, more ambitious or more out there or more, like, provocative or, like, go for broke um, than those movies. And, like, again, you can see that even if you go to Rotten Tomatoes, underneath the tomato meter, which is the... Like, can hate the tomato meter because the tomato meter is just like it's a number mm. and people just like throwing numbers around because it mathematically proves stuff objectively it's a real because, easy like, thing to put on your movie poster by the way to say look how many people think our movie's good oh like like as, as a film critic nothing 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 frustrates me more than we've reached a point where certified fresh mm. is like a critic's pull quote mm -hmm. it's like when i pick up a dvd I want to read about how this movie made somebody feel. I want somebody to like <laughs> quote on the back to say, this is the most exciting experience I've ever had. I, I don't want to know that like on average, 60% of film critics thought it was better than it was worse, I guess. Um, but but, yeah, but that, that's the thing is that like, even underneath that like tomato meter score, there is a critic score, which is out of 10. Mm. And even that's more reflective because it actually grades like, you know, four out of five, five out of five, and kind of just puts them on a scale. Sure. And that's that's arguably more worth checking out. But again, we could talk about like how the best approach to critics is. But for me, just find a critic you trust. Read their opinion. Read, find several of them from diverse viewpoints. Read their opinions. Find friends who have seen movies and ask them. Find friends who know your taste and will recommend to your taste. Like one of the big recurring like tensions on this podcast is, are we ever going to talk about Tenet? Because Darren fucking loves Tenet. Mm. For Darren, Tenet is the best movie of 2020, but Darren is also not an asshole and understands that Jack is probably going to hate Tenet and is not going to make Jack sit through I, Tenet. Now, and here's the thing. We're going to go off on a little sorry. a little Tenet yeah, 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 sidestep here. Sorry. I enjoy a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies. I really do. I think he is a phenomenal filmmaker. Uh, and um, Inception is a fantastic action sci-fi movie it's it's amazing i, I think it, people give inception a, a bunch of crap and i have no idea why it's super fun uh but jack doesn't have plot holes who cares who cares there's people running on a wall shooting each other it's great F fuck that remember when the city folded in on itself that was awesome that was great <laughs> it was super great it was super great full of uh great actors uh an interesting plot the slow-mo thing was phenomenal i i really like inception that being said I haven't seen a Christopher Nolan movie since The Dark Knight Rises because I got I had got a little much. I did I really oh. I did not like The Dark Knight Rises of a lot. And so I was like I need a little Christopher Nolan break. I am in general excited to see Tenant and I feel like the hype level has finally reached a point where I can watch it without <laughs> without any like goobly goops, you know. Yeah, yeah. So that's my scoop, <laughs> quick. But no, but, but I mean, like, yeah. So what about yourself in terms of like reviews? Because I, I, I saw before we recorded this, I didn't have time to watch the video. But yourself and like Yatsi talked about like your review processes and how you approach it. And 
what's the other side of that like? Like, what do you look for in reading a review? Like, what do you look for when you when you want critical feedback? What is what are critics for for you, Jack? Well, you you just said it right there, which is like I I have a a, a slew of critics who I know in general like the same kind of movies that I do. And so if I'm ever wondering if I'm going to watch a movie, I will check with them. Like, you know, the, these three or four people. All right. You know, like, or, you know, we have similar enough tastes where if you like it, the chances of me liking it are pretty high. I also enjoy other reviewers who I know I disagree with a lot, but they make yeah. interesting contributions. They make me think, oh, like, oh, maybe that that's an interesting twist. I still like, oh, you know, we hate this movie, but I still like this movie. And that's the most important thing about critics is like, are you are you listening to a critic to figure out whether or not you're going to buy a game, watch a movie, find critics who like the same shit you do? Or are you listening to critics to expand your knowledge of the art form? And in which case, just find people who generally seem smart and or entertaining. That And that's my whole process when I look for critics. I... I prefer – I'm a, a, on the technical side of things a lot. Like I'm a, I'm a shooter and I'm an editor. So for me, I, I don't listen to critics as much as I listen to like tech people. Like, you know, what sort of lights they're using, what sort of process they use to make this shot. Like that's the kind of crap that I enjoy. So like the – the technical side of things is far more enjoyable than the arty farty side of things, though I am an arty farty fuck. Uh, oh, so. no, I, I I I have a little mask that I use to hook up and smell the arty farty stuff. It's just fantastic. Um, no, yeah. yeah, just give me, give me that good stuff there. <laughs> no, no, like, I, like, this is the thing. I would actually, like, I, I would agree with some, like, something you said there kind of really resonated with me, which is the idea that, like, people who, and again, this is the luxury. I, I fully admit this is, this is critic privilege and mm. this is, like, first world problems. I am probably going to watch everything anyway. So I don't I don't have that problem that a lot of people have of like, how do I find a critic who will tell me, is this worth watching? Sure. So, you know, I mean, I fully admit that I am like by virtue of being a critic myself, checked out from that. Hmm. And, that and it's fair to call me out on that. But like as somebody who reads criticism, I find it fascinating to read. I don't. I don't need my opinions validated because I'm an arrogant like person because like I trust I I trust that I know what I like yes. if that makes sense yes. it's like I, I I watch a movie and I'm like I like it I don't like it I'm not like did I like it and if I am did I like it I'm like I don't need you to tell me if I liked it I, need, I just need more time to figure this out myself yeah. but I I find like when I look at reviews uh, and it doesn't matter whether they agree with me or not but it, it's more use for them to tell me something interesting mm -hmm. and like I, I feel really bad that i don't have like there there was a there was a critic that i used to read quite regularly um who was one of the most notorious um contrarians in the critical industry <laughs> and i suspect people know exactly who he is and i used to and i, I used to recommend reading him and uh, loving him and then i found out that there was some other stuff in his path that i probably you know shouldn't recommend him to people and now don't mm. but like reviews from people who you're like wait how could they possibly feel that way because a critic's job for, for me at least anyway is to explain how they feel that way about something yes. it's it's not to tell you that man this is the worst thing in the history of mankind and it's god awful and you should feel terrible for the fact that you like it it's more like a critic's job is to say i think this is terrible 
here's why I think this is terrible. Here's what I look at. Like I am, mm. for example, I he, like again, I am very artsy fartsy side of stuff. <laughs> I I love the films of Martin Scorsese, mm-hmm. but like Ash Clark's criticisms of Scorsese on things like race, which are not necessarily things that I entirely agree with, but they're not necessarily things that I look at the movies from. Mm-hmm. And also they're things that I don't know enough about to pretend I have a credible opinion on. But I read those articles and I'm like, yeah, I can see where this is coming from. I had never thought of that before. Like when I read a review and it's like, I never looked at it that way. Yeah. I never thought about it that way. That's where I find the value. And that's like my big problem with Rotten Tomatoes culture is that like you end up with situations. And again, it's it's a broader internet thing. Like, yeah. and arguably like we, we put up our hands at the start of this and we said, look, we put the, we put the headline down the bottom because we knew that it would sound provocative and cheeky, but also just because we wanted to talk about bad and good. <laughs> but it's, it's that, thing, that thing in internet culture where nobody reads past the headline mm. and you just react emotionally to the headline and you look at the score. So like, you know, the, whether or not a movie is rotten or fresh and rotten tomatoes doesn't really matter to me. It's more like, do people have interesting things to say about that movie? Mm-hmm. And you'll never get that from like a Rotten Tomatoes score or even like a Metacritic snippet or something like that. And that that's kind of like, again, this is this is Darren being all like, whoa, pity me, poor critic. Um, I just have to watch movies. <laughs> what a terrible existence Oh, I this am. weekend I had to watch Paddington 2. Oh, I need a break. And, and the Mitchells versus the Machines. I mean, oh my God. Um, no, it, it is the best job in the world, um, to be absolutely clear. So I feel kind of bad when I'm like, yeah, but I have strong opinions about how terrible the world is on involving it. No, being a, being a critic is fantastic. And I'm thankful every day that I get to do it. Mm-hmm. But I, like, I do worry about that. I worry about like the devaluation where, and again, it's a very arrogant lofty thing to worry about but it's like there are all these really great writers out there doing all this really great writing Mm -hmm. and i worry that people are like yeah but is it fresh or rotten is it yes or no and it's like that that feels like the most reductive question you can ask about like somebody's heart on on this thing (laughs) yeah well you know it you know what it reminds me of as as you say this which i all agree with by the way is it's a similar problem that the scientific community has which is you know these researchers like pouring their their hours and their heart into you know 20 long 20 page long research studies on the effects of a high cholesterol diet or something and then a news article takes one sentence from it out of context makes that the headline everyone believes the headline and so the ability to articulate an a giant study of something in a short amount of things is an art form that we haven't quite yet mastered yet and, and more than that, there's a certain, and again, I, I feel bad because I, I'm part of like the critical community. I do critical writing and stuff like that. But there, there is a certain cynicism in terms of calculating this stuff and mm. like using this to generate clickbait and headlines of course, where of course. like, like Paddington, you know, didn't replace Citizen Kane at the top of some list on Rotten Tomatoes. Rotten Tomatoes has a list of the best reviewed films, mm. but it is not based on like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's based on things like weighting according to critics' grades and stuff like that. At the top of it are movies like Black Panther, for example, or The Shawshank Redemption. Mm. I think Paddington 2 is at 31. I mean, phew. What are we doing? Talking about the 31st best movie of all time. <laughs> man, <I mean>. but, <laughs> but, like, but like the whole thing is that like somebody saw... That this, and again, we didn't, we haven't even talked about Citizen Kane. We probably shouldn't talk about Citizen Kane. We talked enough about Citizen Kane last week, but I love, I love that the review that like spiked Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. And when I say spiked Citizen Kane, 
it's not like they're going to stop teaching it in film class. It's not as if, it's not as if like everybody's going to come to your house and take your film theory book and just tear it up because they found this review. Right. But it, it, it was a review, I think, from a Chicago newspaper from the film's release. And I, I love, by the way, that it was written by uh, May Tenney, which is obviously a pen name because it's a play on Matene. Oh, May Tenney. That's funny. Uh, um, and again, part of me is like my conspiratorial hat is on here. And I'm wondering, is this part of like the her smear campaign for the movie? And it's great because the 80, <laughs> the 80 year old review already begins with. This is not the greatest movie of all time, which again, one of my favorite details about Citizen Kane is that like, it didn't take decades for people to be like, this is the best movie ever made. Like even before it was even released, people were like, this is the best movie ever made. <laughs> it's like, do we want to hedge our bets? Do we want to like coach? Do you want to wait like five years no. and see how it settles? It's like, no, nope, best, best movie, movie ever. ever. <laughs> um, and Orson Welles, I think like, my favorite take on, on Citizen Kane as the best movie ever comes from, of course it does, from Orson Welles himself on Johnny Carson. When like Johnny Carson's like, People consider this this is a Kane movie you made. It's pretty, pretty good. Some people even say it's the best movie of all time. Do you think it's the best movie of all time? And Orson Welles' response is no, but my next one will be. And it's like he's yeah, he's theater. selling it. Just selling what he knows what's up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and like we have to this is this is the problem it's and it's the problem in every way shape and form i know like over on the video game side of things we talk about this a lot because we really like covering small indie games it's really fun to talk about small indie movies but because the audience isn't there that we usually don't get the engagement we don't get those clicks and so, like, balancing between the small stuff and the stuff with the large audience is always a really tricky act to pull off. And I feel like it's the same with a site like Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes, where everyone wants that nice, easy number. This is certified fresh. Oh, 97% fresh. Look at how many people like this movie. Uh, and, and, and that makes it so easy to turn your brain off. And just say, yes, I know I, you know, I will like this or I will watch this. And to the the upsetting part about it is for the vast majority of people, they really don't care to know anymore. Like it's 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 those of us here. It's those of us. Uh, it's those of you who are watching and are listening to this right now are so invested in yeah. art culture and in movies that we want to talk about it more. And and that's yeah. the the shame of it all is is we're outnumbered. We're always outnumbered, Darren. <laughs> And, and like I mean, and to be fair, like I, I'm not like old man shakes a fist, shakes fist a cloud. I'm not, you know. And we talked about this in the podcast before, where the tendency is to be very doom and gloom about the future of like mm. literally everything right now, and understandably so. Mm -hmm. Um, but like part of me is also like, yeah, but the future is scary and new, and there's there's new potential there. I like how I learned to love cinema is like I learned to love it from my parents. Like I I remember my parents every weekend would go to the, the video store and take home two DVDs. And we would argue over which two DVDs we'd take. I get to have a little argument there, little 10-year-old Darren being, but I want to watch Starship Troopers. And it's like, finally, after three months, they relented and we all watched Starship Troopers together. And that was a night that none of us would ever forget. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, like, but like, 
I, I remember like as a teenager and as a kid, like going to the cinema in Sligo where I grew up because there was literally nothing else on, but like going to the pizza place afterwards and like chatting, like this is a really silly, really sad, really nerdy story. But like, if you remember the matrix reloaded, like how big an event that was, mm -hmm. I think like 14 of us like went together as a group to go and see that at the cinema in Sligo and then went to the pizza place afterwards and had the most stereotypical like 13 year old boy philosophical conversations <laughs> about what this movie meant. But I, I love that stuff. Yes. And I, I, I don't doubt that that stuff is still happening out there. I'm very wary of it mm. seeming like I'm shaking my fist in the sky saying, kids these days, they have no respect for the 3 a.m. pizza conversations about Matrix Reloaded. I don't doubt that there are probably kids out there having those same debates about whatever, you know, movie. I don't think maybe not, maybe not Paddington 2, maybe not the Mitchells versus the Machines, but like presumably something like Palm Springs or something like that. Mm. They're, they're seeing them and they're going out and talking about them. And like I find that really heartening and really kind of warming and, and again, to bring it back to scores, because because mm. like that's that seems to be what we're talking about here. Like, and again, this is something I'm kind of curious with your experience, both as a reviewer of film and and of games. But like, I always find myself really uncomfortable with scores mm. because like there are some things that I'm like, well, depending on how you look at it, it's a four or a two. <laughs> like, right. like Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which I love, I love to death. That movie is a like a nervous breakdown dream movie. Um, it makes no sense from a plotting level, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it works as a mood piece. It's got these set of performances. It's got this sense of apocalypse and dread and angst. And it really feels like watching it. You're watching Michael Mann have a nervous breakdown as all of this stuff falls apart around him. And I'm like, that is pretty much perfect for what it's trying to be. But at the same time, I'm not sure it's a functional movie in basic terms, in terms of like having a plot that is easier to follow. Um, and I do wonder, like, like in terms of games, presumably it's the same thing because like, like with films, it was Roger Ebert's famous thumbs up or thumbs down that kind of started all binary yes or no. Yeah. And then it was the the five star system. And this is, I find this absolutely fascinating. Sorry, this is, I, I love that I'm like, I don't like numbers. I don't like grades, but I also find this fascinating. Scandinavian, do you know that Scandinavian reviewers have a six star system? What? Which I find. Yeah, yeah, they do. I, I only noticed that when I was like, I was looking at like reviews for some movie that released a couple of years ago, and I was seeing that Scandinavian critics love it. And I'm like, wait a minute, there are too many stars here. But it's like, yeah, apparently six stars. But like, one of the things I love about the star system, and this is this is just a tangent upon tangent, and I apologize for this. The, re <laughs> the reason why British star, British critics give five stars, and American critics give four stars, and I love this, is because it's the same system. It's theoretically meant to be the same system. It's theoretically meant to be four stars. But British film critics thought it would be impolite to give less than a single star. The most British film criticism thing ever. I love that. <laughs> and so if your, if your movie gets one star in in britain you know it tanked like you know it's awful okay sure <laughs> yeah. I the gentleman's one the gentleman's one i love it well oh yeah no numbers are awful like numbers are awful 
Uh, one, because it takes away the entire discussion because you can watch a movie once. I, you know, I know, uh, you bring up the, the best example of this, which is, uh, people who saw Wonder Woman 1984 in the theaters had a very positive experience about it. People who saw it at home had a less than positive experience about that and seeing it in the, where are the pitchforks? Right. Well, but seeing it in the theater affected your perception of the movie. So now let's say you attach a number to that but then you yeah. re-watch it later at home and realize wait something's different here now that i've had more time like do you change your number it's yeah. numbers are are I, I like numbers are helpful like like an, like a thumbs up and a thumbs down yeah. is helpful like yeah. even even just a recommendation is helpful but i think it always needs to be followed up with or, or followed up with either a discussion or a, hey, a couple months later, I've had some time to reflect. I took a look back at this thing and now eh, uh, maybe I feel better about it. Maybe I feel worse about it. That's that's the weird thing. It, it Numbers take away any sort of nuance that you can have at it. I know I, I, I made some enemies when we were streaming video games last week. When I was talking about I'm, I'm playing a, a game called Monster Hunter Rise right now. And I like a whole lot of the game. Oh, I like this part. I like this part. I like this part. But I also dislike like 60% of the game. But the 40% that I do yeah. like is carrying me through that 60%. Oh, and so it's like this wibbly yeah. wobbly conversation about art, a, a collaborative art form that you might not like a big chunk of, but still like it overall. Oh, blah, blah. No, it's a four, a four out of 10. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, fuck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because I think like video games, you guys generally use like a hundred point scale, <laughs> which is insane to me. Like I, I have difficulty wrapping my head around zero or one up or down. Right. Like how, how, how do you make a hundred point scale work? Right. Um, no. And so like I and I see Nick's in our chat saying that, you know, they don't oh. use, use review scores anymore, which is good. Like I think because yeah. as I said before, I think the job of a critic uh, and and as you've said before, the job of a critic is to say how you feel about it and then articulate why. And if you agree with that critic, then that is a, a critic for you. And so like that's the more important thing. This is how I felt. These are all of the reasons. Hopefully it can be short enough where I hold your attention um yeah. beyond the headline three minutes, perhaps. for perhaps three minutes perhaps three minutes. three minutes would seem to be a good format um darren says making his plug mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. <laughs> but before we wrap up just just one more thing on on kind of like paddington 2 as the greatest movie ever Ooh. which I, I think is maybe merits a bit of discussion um because I, th I think like it's it's arguably part of like a broader cultural thing which is happening which i am generally speaking in favor of which is this idea of we mentioned the idea of like the canon and the idea of there being these perfect films that will always exist. Mm -hmm. And I think like we talked about Mank last week, let's not read it. The point is I am generally a very boring person whose opinions largely overlap to a certain extent with this kind of boring gatekeepery stuff. But like my opinions are also like, if you enjoy it, just enjoy it. Like <laughs> right. don't feel any shame about it. Like I happen to like this stuff. This is the stuff that I like. It's not homework for me. Um, mm. But like, 
we've seen an interesting debate happen over the idea of the canon in recent years. The discussion of like how we value movies um, and why we value particular movies in particular ways. Why, as we mentioned, Citizen Kane is generally regarded as the greatest movie of all time. And we've seen an interesting kind of pushback. It's a movement I think called poptimism. And it happens in music as well, where people are kind of now taking, like it used to be that like rock was serious. Like rock was the music that you took seriously because it was playing guitars and it took like technical skill and technical craft. And pop was kind of looked down on because it was seen as being disposable, mm -hmm. cheery, like marketed. It was, you know, it was marketed, man. It was made so that people liked it, not so that it was for the art. Um, and you have this kind of like arguably the same discussion happening in cinema where you have entire genres. And we talked about this before. Like I, I'm a huge fiend for horror. I love mm -hmm. horror. I think horror is frequently ignored or overlooked or disregarded not taken seriously as an art form. It's seen as being lesser than prestige dramas or thrillers or whatever. Um, but I think in recent years, we've seen a worthy and deserving like reclaiming of the canon and acknowledgement that like movies that we've often overlooked or ignored so take for example romantic comedies or horror movies or like schlocky action movies or to pick a, a, an example relevant here family movies starring a cgi talking bear mm -hmm. that those movies merit discussion as part of like great movies that they are doing things that are worth doing that like a good movie doesn't have to look like mank Yes, I like Mank, but there are good movies that do not look like Mank. And like recognizing that like not only going forward now, but going back retroactively and acknowledging the work of filmmakers like, say, Julie Dash's work on like Daughter of the Dust, which was ignored and overlooked at the time. Like I, I think that like this this discussion that we are having, slash shouting match that we are having uh, about like Citizen Kane and Paddington 2 is also kind of tapping into that. Mm -hmm. I think it's like, taking it a little and I, I don't want to undermine myself by saying taking it too far but taking it to a logical extreme where it's like this movie that many people consider to have defined the art form of cinema and like changed the way in which films were made and the language of cinema as a whole is being compared with like this adorable beautifully well-made clever insightful moving talking bear movie from a couple of years ago but I do feel like that whole thing is part of like a spectrum of discussion that I am generally glad to see happening well, that, well that's to me that's the great equalizer is they're both part of the same medium and they can be talked about next to each other and that's that's the point is if you enjoy Citizen Kane that's great if you enjoy Paddington 2 that's great if you enjoy tr any of the Transformers movies not my thing but if that's what you're into you are enjoying the medium and the medium is greater than any of its individual pieces yeah, like, I mean, I like I go to the <laughs> Dublin Film Festival every year, or at least when it used to be on. And like, I would like one of my most profound experiences there, and it's a very odd one, is being on like the, the Dublin Lewis Metro service, um, coming out of a screening of a movie that I, I loathed with every passion, every fire in my being. And that takes a lot. I'm, I'm generally a pretty mellow guy. Mm. I like to li I like, I like, I like liking movies, <laughs> uh, but I came out of this movie and I was really angry and really frustrated. And I don't know why, but this this stranger, this this young person, obviously they'd see me at the screening or whatever. They came up and they're like, so, so you know, what did you think of that? And I, I didn't respond by opening my mouth and letting out a guttural death howl. I said, what did you make of hmm. that? And and his response was, I had I, I'd never seen a movie like that. I didn't know a movie could be like I didn't know you could do that in, in a movie. I thought it was beautiful and moving and I, I found it deeply affecting. And I was like, 
yeah, I, I still hate the movie, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, that's that's no, that's, that's yeah. I'm really happy yes. for this guy. That's amazing, you know. <laughs> and, well, the, that and that's the point. Hopefully, like that's the positivity. Like, like I I spend a chunk of my free time watching very old bad VHS movies because I love the art form so much. In you know, like there. There is joy to be had in a lot of things like there is a joy to be had in a lot of in a wide spectrum of movies. And I think like if we're if we're going to put a button on this at all, it's don't let these numbers rule you and don't let them uh, rule you. So you rule over others opinions. That's the real takeaway. Is yeah. don't don't let don't let these numbers don't let these reviews don't let the hit I'm you know I'm looking at my like cinematography textbooks over there and it's like don't let even those rule over how you judge other people's movie watching habits let people enjoy whatever they want yeah life is short uh, and like enjoy what you enjoy do something that brings you happiness mm-hmm. like generally speaking if you want to be a critic i would argue that you should have a broad taste you should like venture outside your comfort zone you should try new things you should have like respect for the, the medium as a whole and that doesn't just mean boring old white guy pictures that means actually going back and finding out the stuff that like existed at the margins of those old white guy pictures and were ignored and overlooked mm-hmm. but i also think that like if you're not trying to be a critic if you're trying to just enjoy movies enjoy movies watch watch what you want to watch don't let me tell you that you should watch or you have to watch or that a movie you enjoyed is terrible or whatever just go with it trust your instinct go with what makes you happy sorry no and like like lampy says we should all just be a little bit more like paddington bear yeah when you're kind and polite the world will be right and before we before we say goodbye, I do want to uh, say a special thanks uh, to Luis Bright. Welcome to Early Access over on the Escapist Movie Channel. We definitely appreciate your support. As Nick has pinned to the top of the chat, uh, super chats, memberships, that sort of things help pay for the channel. Help uh, help Darren and I hopefully have uh, positive conversations about bears and canes. I mean, you know, this was unbearably snug. Ooh. <laughs> also, I feel like I didn't single it out, but I feel like Paddington 2 gets a whole star added to it for the way in which Brendan Gleeson says, Mama Lass. Ma- <laughs> it's, Mama again, Lass. it's that comedy That's... cut, that comedy cut just to his face filling the entire screen going, Mama La Dime. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Watch if nothing else. Watch Paddington Two to learn how to edit and pace physical yeah. gags. The the physical like the slapstick gags. Uh, obviously, like and they even have a little. Sorry to go back to Paddington Two. I know we were wrapping up. No, no, no. But like uh, Paddington Two, even very uh, visually references a Charlie Chaplin bit. But it's like it's very Charlie Chaplin. It's very Buster Keaton, and the like the visual gags in that movie spot on perfection every single one yeah he does the like the modern time thing he ends up with the charlie chaplin mustache when he does when he goes through the gears which is exactly sorry no it's really fun but like that like it's probably on youtube like but you know paddington in prison introducing his uh his prison mates like just watch that scene just to learn about how to pace comedy correctly it's fantastic (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks everybody for watching and or listening to this once again i've been jack packard 
I've been Darren Moon. And, uh, and we appreciate you guys listening, and hopefully you enjoy movies as much as we do. This is the Escapist Movie Podcast. Bye!